0: Welcome to Digital Marketing Happy Hour, a podcast about marketing, technology, and life. Ryan and I have another fun and informative episode of the Happy Hour for you this week with a great guest interview. We're going to discuss how SMBs and startups can use their agility to outfox the big brands with much larger budgets. It's episode number 19, why SMBs have a distinct advantage in MarTech with Scott Brinker, and it's coming at you right now.
1: Digital marketing happy hours brought to you by Araxum, your resource for marketing and technology. For more information, go to araxum.com. That's a r a x a m dot com.
0: So this is a happy hour. What are you drinking today, Ryan?
1: I, you know, I've been kind of on this back and forth with the wine and beer, and a lot of my beers have been local recently. So we're to scratch all that. I'm going back to an import. Uh, Modelo Especial is what uh, I'm drinking this happy hour. What are you drinking? You know, I had been drinking local for a
0: while, but I'm, I'm drinking a Newcastle brown ale today, which is not one I drink often, but when it's cold, it's really, really good. So definitely recommend it. So this was another fantastic episode. The interview with Scott was excellent. I don't want to waste a minute of our time. Ryan, let's bring him in.
1: We're very excited today to host Scott Brinker on Digital Marketing Happy Hour Scott is the godfather of the MarTech movement, which for those of you that might not have heard that term, it's diffusion of technology into the marketing landscape. He's the author of the best-selling book, Hacking Marketing, author of ChiefMarTech.com, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a blog that examines the intersection marketing technology management program, chair of the MarTech conference series. But one of the things I love the most, Scott, is you are the VP of Platform Ecosystem at HubSpot, which is something that Chris and I have been fans of HubSpot s- last ten years. I think we probably started about twenty eleven. We kind of we, we got into it, and even went to uh, an inbound as well, one of the best marketing conferences I've ever been to. So it's very fitting you know, just to show how this vast marketing technology landscape has become to have someone like Scott Brinker on the digital marketing happy hour. So Scott, welcome to the happy hour.
2: I'm excited to be here. I mean, like, yeah, you know, I'm telling you here in 2020, getting a happy hour is like an awesome experience. Uh, I forgot uh, we took it for granted for too many years. So this is great.
1: (laughs) Well, this is the way that we do happy hour now, right? You know, virtually uh, through that. Now, it could be any, you know, other happy hour if we didn't talk about what the different types of drinks that we normally would have at a happy hour. So, Scott, if you're going out, you're going to a bar, wherever... What is your drink of choice? Oh, wow, man. Um, you know, I have
2: to say I'm uh, I'm one of the Scotch whiskey folks. Me, I like, like it. Talisker or something like that. I, I'm happy. I was going to say, nice. is there a specific one you
1: like, Scotch?
2: I, I, I like them all. But uh, yeah, you know, Talisker is uh, probably my uh, favorite. <laughs> if you're buying, I'll have a Talisker. <laughs> nice.
0: Well, I got to say, I can't. Even tell you how excited we are to have you here, and part of the reason for that is when Ryan and I started recording the podcast, we each came up with sort of our secret list of like our you know if you could if you could have any th- you know three people in the world who would who would who would they be? And you were top of my list. And before you think I'm just sucking up to the the, the guest, uh, let me provide a little context. As Ryan mentioned, you know back in 2011, uh, we both happened to be working for the same tech company here in the Tampa area, and. I was on the web development side of things. And our our listeners know a little bit of my backstory, but just to provide a little more detail, my bachelor's is in computer science, so I had been a software developer for years. The company that I joined here in Tampa, I was the web developer sitting with the marketing department, and Ryan was in charge of marketing strategy at the time, which was how we sort of met. It's sort of ironic because I was a web developer with the company, which was tucked into the marketing department, which I would argue is probably where it makes sense, but... Their vision was that a web developer was not quite a software developer. And so it was kind of this relegated to the side thing. I actually didn't mind that because I loved the work that we were doing. I loved the impact that we were having. Uh, part of the reason I went into web is that I didn't want to necessarily have to create these fancy algorithms that I couldn't see the output of. I wanted to see how people were using the technology. So it was this weird feeling of, I, I like it, but I don't know quite where I fit. Fast forward a few years ago. I was getting on a plane to visit a friend of mine uh, in Boston, ironically. Uh, and when I get on a plane, despite all of the Kindle and Audible and all the digital stuff I have, I love to just hold a magazine. And I happened to stop off at the magazine stand and pick up a copy of Harvard Business Review, which I have kept all these years. Oh, wow. It's the original. <laughs> and I, you know, you're getting on a plane, reading, flipping through the articles, and I came across this article titled, The Rise of the Chief Marketing Technologist. And I can't tell you, I don't know if any of you have ever had a moment where you're reading something that you feel like was written for you that you can see yourself in. And it was this sort of eureka moment for me of like, oh oh my God, I'm not crazy. This is actually a role. This is important. And so I guess my first question for you is what was the genesis of that? Because I guess in my mind, because it's so near and dear to my heart, I sort of see this back to the future Doc Brown moment, you know, hitting your head and waking up with the the for the flux capacitor, you know, what was, what was your realization of it? And could you have ever imagined, you know, this is the July, August 2014 issue, so many years later, what this movement would grow into?
2: Yeah, wow. It's, um, I mean, it has been the rise of a net new profession. Uh, you know, I think, um, uh, yeah, so a little bit of my background uh, is sort of through the late 90s and then through the early 2000s, uh, I was running the tech group at a web development agency. And so our agency would get hired by the marketing departments of these Fortune 500 companies because it was marketing that had you know the budget and you know t- had big dreams of you know what they could do on the web. But since I was running the tech team at the agency, it would then be my role once we got the engagement to go and talk to the IT department at that company because the marketing department and the IT department couldn't actually talk to each other. It wasn't that they hated each other it, it wasn't like there was an animosity it was frankly more of just like they literally did not know how to talk to each other they were just living in a different worlds with different objectives and different language um and so as i was like yeah shuttling back and forth uh, between these uh two departments it just two things struck me it's like yeah wow i mean the the, the the gap there was wide. Um, uh, but also when you were looking at what the businesses were ultimately trying to achieve and execute, it was so clear that these groups were going to have to work together. And so that's where I got really fascinated by other professionals who were serving as the bridges between these departments. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't actually come up with the name chief marketing technologist. Someone else had suggested, oh, Hey, maybe there should be a, a role of someone who's explicitly designated to, you know, bridge these two departments. Uh, and so, yeah, that started the blog and, you know, for the first from 2008 till yeah, 2014, you know, it really was a ragtag band of, you know, individuals like yourself, i would myself in that same category of like it was clear there was value being created here but it was such a new role you know these technologists in the marketing department what was that all about that yeah it was you know I, I i think almost all of us at that age uh, you know stage of this felt like a bit isolated and like okay i'm, I'm doing this i know there's something good here but it's like I can't go on LinkedIn and like find, you know, a hundred other people who like are doing exactly what I'm doing. What do people even call me, you know? And so, yeah, it was really as momentum started to build that finally uh, Harvard business review actually reached out to me about that, where they said they were starting to hear more and more of these stories, uh, you know, just among their audience. Uh, And so that's how they found me and asked me to write that article Uh, And so I think that was kind of a bit of a turning point where suddenly what was, yeah, this this very underneath the the radar, unofficial role started to, yeah, actually become a, you know, credible profession. I feel
0: like that's how it started with us because, and Ryan, I don't want to speak for you, but maybe you could elaborate on it. I feel like you would go to IT or you'd go to the software team saying, I'm trying to accomplish this. And they'd look at you like you had four heads. And so you'd come back and you'd say, Chris, this is all I'm trying to do. And I'd be like, yeah, well, let me show you how to do that. And it would be, and that was part of the reason our friendship developed because you're like, all right, so I'm not crazy. You understand what I'm trying to accomplish and you can show me how to embrace software to do it.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting about that is coming from the other side of things, I don't want to know how it all works. I just want to have go from here to there. You figure it out what happens in between. And and at a very high level, it's kind of what the conversation sometimes would be, you know, and, and I think from, from somebody on the, the strategy side of things who doesn't really know, even in 2020, all the nuts and the bolts, and now we have marketing automation and all that, don't really know or wants to know exactly how it's done. And, and that's where I think this relationship from both sides of so the development and obviously the strategy mar- digital marketing side is so important that the communication is vital. And Chris and I, you know, we started with this company. It was siloed. It took, a, it took a little while to, you know, tear down those walls, you know, and uh, not to get all Ronald Reagan here, but, you know, to, and, and g- come together where all of a sudden we can be like, wait a minute. Okay, so this is what you do. This is what I do. Maybe we should meet somewhere in the middle. That's kind of where a lot of this sort of started from us. And I think a lot of companies have similar issues.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I actually where you're coming from there resonates deeply with me that, you know, as MarTech was starting to really get a lot of momentum in like 2010 through 2014, uh, there was uh, actually my co-author on that article, uh, Laura McClellan, you know, she was the person at Gartner who like created all these waves by saying, hey, you know, within three years, the CMO is going to spend more on technology than the CIO, which... At that time, we've created an enormous (laughs) storm of debate, turned out actually she ended up being right. But, uh, you know, one of the questions that got raised was, okay, well, then does the CMO need to become a tech expert? And part of my argument was always no. No, that's 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 not. I mean, but what the CMO does need is the CMO needs someone on his or her team who is going to be that translation, you know, from their brand strategy, their marketing strategy vision into the technology of, yeah, how we actually implement this in a digital world.
0: So, with all the growth we've seen in martech, you've been talking recently or I guess it's probably over the last year or so about how we're sort of hitting that end of the first golden age of Martech and there's a little bit of contraction happening and you see a potential second golden age of of Martech. Is it possible that as some of these companies are consumed that the features will just grow into other things and it will continue to boom? Or do you see that trend sort of lasting?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question with some somewhat subtle dynamics. So I think a couple things are simultaneously true that sound like they're opposites of each other, but when you you peel a few layers back, they're not. Uh, So one thing is the large MarTech companies are getting larger, uh, right? I mean, you know, uh, uh, Salesforce, Adobe, uh, HubSpot, you know, I mean, there is actually a really strong consolidation for these primary platforms in the marketing industry today. But at the same time, A couple of things are sort of feeding the explosion in the other direction. One is all of these major platforms have really leaned into opening up their APIs, you know, creating like explicit app ecosystems around their platforms because they realize out of all the customers using these products, I mean, there's just incredible variance of the demands of what an individual customer wants to do in the context of their particular business with particular channels and particular audiences and how does this tie into their particular product or service, I mean, it's just, there's a lot, um, you know? And so no one company can like build all of that for all those use cases. So they're trying to like use a bit of a judo move to say, okay, well, you know, listen, use our platform as the foundation to facilitate uh, those more specialized apps. And then on the other side of things, you know, boy, creating software now between Amazon and Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure, and then all like all the open source projects that are out there, I mean software has like almost no barriers to entry at this point, you know, and so you get this combination of these platforms that are now providing a mechanism to sell specialized, you know, app products from third parties to very large customer bases. And any of these folks who want to be a third party app developer has the ability to leverage this world-class infrastructure in the cloud for just, you know, pennies. I think what you're, Seeing today, and we'll continue to see for the rest of the 2020s, is just going to be an explosion of highly specialized apps uh, across every vertical and you know particular emerging channel or use case you can imagine. How do you see adoption
0: with that? Like, with if the the law of Martech is technology changes exponentially, but organizations change logarithmically, which is to say they don't keep up with the pace of technology. But as we've seen throughout you know, this global pandemic, and as you've uh, published on in the last week, every once in a while, you have a cataclysmic event that forces that change. And I think there's no question that we've seen that change with COVID-19. Organizations that have, everybody's had to work from home, we're adopting to Zoom meetings or Microsoft Teams meetings, you know, pick your poison. Every, everybody has had to force this change, right? I guess my question with that is, do you see us just sort of going back to the norm like we always do? Or do you think certain organizations will be able to embrace this? And I don't think that we'll quite keep up the same pace, but maybe a quicker pace than we have been before.
2: Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, you know, 2020 has (laughs) been a really hellish year. Um, Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, this change that companies have had to go through simply as a matter of survival, like short-term survival even, right? It's just an incredibly unpleasant uh, experience for everyone trying to adapt at this speed. Um, So I think you're right. Once we get past this crisis level, you know, just, yeah, we we can't sustain this level of like personal and professional stress that 2020 has uh, put us all through. But that being said, you know, before 2020, You know, I've talked to so many companies about their digital transformation efforts. And these plans were like, you know, always laid out in terms of years. Oh, yeah, this is our five year plan to digitally transform, you know, and like a year or two into it, it was clear, Okay, five years dramatically underestimated how long this was actually going to be. And it got to the point where I'd almost kind of just, I think, along with everyone else, just kind of accepted as like, yep, well, I guess if you want to change a company of any real size, you better, you know settle in for the long haul of, you know, a multi-year transformation. And then having seen such dramatic changes in just a matter of months, uh, you know, with the COVID crisis, it's like, okay, well it is actually possible for us to change faster. And so, yeah, where will the level set be when we come out on the other side of this pandemic? Um, Yeah. Hopefully it won't be this frenetic, But I think our expectations of saying, listen, if we make a strategic decision that we want to change a particular way in which we engage an audience or, you know, our go-to-market mechanisms, you know, we can do that. And we can probably do it in less than half a decade. Do you think customer expectations will change with that? Like.
0: I guess I feel that part of the reason that businesses today have been able to get away with making change this rapidly is they didn't have a choice. Like you were forced at home and so you had to do it. And so if you made a mistake, customers or your clients were a little more forgiving because suddenly you're home and the kids are running around in the background through e-learning or they hear the dog barking or something like that, right? And so – I don't know, at least for a while there, it seemed like we were a little bit more patient with each other, which I think is what allows for some of that adoption. Do you think that will sustain? Or do you think we go right back to just being impatient and assuming companies have to deliver perfection on everything?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I guess the question I would, I would turn that around and ask, what is more likely to annoy a customer that a company is trying some new way of engaging with them and makes a mistake in that process in any number of ways you can imagine that mistake going versus a company just not changing. And you as a customer, you're starting to get these much better experiences from other companies and other market leaders. And then when you go to this one brand that you've worked with for years, but it's like, oh man, I can't even do this online with them. I've got to call someone on the phone. I've got to like wait for 30 minutes. It's just like, which is more likely to annoy and potentially lose the customer, like changing and making some mistakes or not changing, uh, you know, with, yeah, just what whatever that rising ambient level of customer expectation is. So the Martech Conference,
0: you give out awards called the Stackies for individuals that sort of diagram and explain their marketing technology stack. And I'm curious, you know, as you've had the opportunity to do this for years and seen so many of these different marketing technology stacks, small businesses, large businesses, uh, is there anything that you've seen as, you know, a pattern or a trend that is consistent across all those that are successful? Or does it really vary based on the organization and the people?
2: Yeah. So let me allow me a slight detour. Um, Sure. The way that came about was I was going to moderate a panel of some CMOs at some conference, you know, and it was going to be like strategies for your marketing technology or something like that. Uh, And so one of the things I suggested to the panelists before they came is I said, listen, if you want to, you know, like, yeah, share your stack with people, like I'll just ask you one question, get things going saying, oh yeah, these are the tools we use and then we'll move on to the next questions. So we get there for the day of that. And like, we never get past the first question because first of all, like each of the panelists is so intent on like explaining all the details of which products they used and why and how they came together which okay you know you might be like okay well maybe just the panelists were obsessed with that but then the audience oh they were like into it and they were raising well why did you choose that one for oh yeah let me tell you okay well how do you get this one to work with that you know and so the entire session like a 45 minute session became just like these three marketers like walking through their stacks i'm like all right there's something here um and so yeah that 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 stackies contest we do every year which again contest to be honest, it's less about like picking a winner because, hey, you know, a, a great stack is a stack that serves your business well, but it's become such an incredible community asset for marketers to share their concepts of how they pull these things together and for us to just learn from each other. So I think, it, yeah, that all, all that detour gets me back to, you know, I think one of the things that is a pattern that's very clear is the companies who are doing well with this are very intentional about their martech stacks you know the i think the popular opinion sometimes is like oh marketers it's just shiny object syndromes i'll just try any like random technology and throw it in and to be honest i just don't think that's a very fair charge i think actually the, most of these people who have these elaborate stacks they've thought very carefully about which pieces they're picking and what purpose they serve and how they work together. Um, and I think they, get a lot, they should get a lot more credit uh, for the thoughtfulness that's gone
1: into that already. So Scott, when you look at organizations that have done this successfully, in reality, how big of a role does budget play?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I th- think it can play less of a role today than ever. You know, I mean, part of the process of examining the MarTech landscape every year, uh, we end up like visiting every website, every one of those uh, technologies, just part of the validation of, you know, making sure these folks are real and what they're doing, you know, and so as part of that exercise, I'm always looking through, you know, pricing pages have become a lot more, uh, you know, common, which is a great thing for transparency in the industry. And the truth is, there's just amazing technology here in MarTech today that's just not that expensive. Uh, In fact, if anything, this is why I feel, frankly, I think SMBs are getting to a place where they have some real advantage over their larger competitors in MarTech because... They can now afford, you know, some stuff that's truly state of the art, but the advantage they have over their larger competitors is they're able to actually adjust their, you know, like strategy and implementation and operation around those much more quickly and experiment with it versus, you know, in a larger company, anytime you want to, you know, change the way things, you know, are connected or, you know, who's doing what, you know, it just, it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of money spent on MarTech, but I, I don't feel like budget is the bottleneck now for people doing great things in this space. What is the bottleneck then? I think it's the investment in the talent. Mm. And I don't mean like investment in the talent, like, oh, I need to go hire someone who's specifically done this before. Uh, partly because this is so new. There's relatively finite number of people who've done this before. But I mean, like, even if you have someone, you know, on the team already that you're going to assign this to, giving them the time to like really learn this stuff and to experiment with it and invest in, you know, uh, you know, training programs, you know, not just with the vendors, but, you know, uh, with, uh, yeah, I mean, other conferences or, you know, connecting with consultants and just recognizing that, Yeah, it's like 10% the technology and 90% uh, of what we actually do with it. And I I still think on the whole, people
1: underestimate uh, that ratio. You know, it's good to hear that because we do have a lot of SMBs, even entrepreneurs that are listeners to this podcast. And especially for entrepreneurs who know their product, they know what they're trying to with a service could be. It's the marketing part. You know, sometimes I don't really know. And you hear this Martech and one look, it's overwhelming. You know, it it can be, but from their standpoint, it's good to hear you say that though, that maybe they have a little bit of advantage that maybe the Fortune 100, you know, don't. Obviously they have more resources, but the fact that they can, I guess, maybe participate more in in Martech within their, their brand and their company than they've ever had before, I think it really helps because as someone who initially wasn't in Martech, it's something that you kind of try to stay away from. I don't know. It's too confusing. I don't know where to begin. But I think a lot of marketing automation even is becoming a lot more user-friendly. And people who don't maybe have that skill set that you have or that that Chris has, I think they can begin to play in that sandbox.
2: Yeah. Well, I think part of, again, coming back to like how you use this, I can give you a really concrete example. So um, just websites, right? Uh, so I mentioned, right, I go through and I like look at all, well, it's not not just me, it's like a whole team of us that do this, but we look at every website of every MarTech vendor on that landscape. Now, you would think as MarTech vendors, I mean, like they, they, they make their living in MarTech, you know, like clearly if anyone should be held to a bar of like having an amazing website, it should be this cohort. Oh my goodness, the number of websites that just suck. Uh, and it's not that they suck because of a technology thing. It's like, it's just incomplete. Like you go there and you're like, I have no idea what you do. You are not explaining this to me. I can't find my way around. If I've got questions, I can't get to it. This is not a rocket science, MarTech technology challenge. This is a marketing challenge. You know, people just not really being clear on who they're engaging with, what they need to do to serve those people well, and then being really focused on delivering that. I mean, I think you could do, if you were really great at the marketing piece of it, and you had the tiniest, cheapest tech stack in the world, you would kick the pants off of people who are spending like orders of magnitude more on the technology, but they're just never bringing the craft of marketing into how they actually harness those capabilities. How big
0: of a role do you think governance plays in the successful adoption. And and part of the reason I ask that is I feel like to similar to the point you just made, technology often isn't the hang up or the problem. We've seen a lot of small businesses wield the technology very well and they implement exactly what they need to, but as they grow, they start to become more siloed and fractured in a lot of ways. And even though they have the tools you know, if one department's in control of this and another's in control of that, and you don't have very clear governance guidelines on who is allowed to say what to whom, when, using what tools, all the technology in the world's not going to solve that.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think you know this is an industry that's still evolving and so you know i mentioned in the beginning that i'm actually a big believer i mean i get some bias here i work at hubspot but you know i'm a big believer in these you know large platforms at the center of martech stacks one is because they then become that hub <laughs> if you will for uh, you know connecting all these more specialized third party apps but the other is because as you get these larger solutions, you know, from companies like Salesforce and Oracle and HubSpot, you know, they're not constrained to just the marketing department. They are like platforms that are designed to connect data and processes, you know, across marketing and sales and customer success. And how is this going to feed back into our back office systems? And I think that's really important because, yeah, I mean, if you if you get the siloization is a, is a real problem. The customers keep expecting a more and more fluid experience across, you know, they don't care if you're marketing sales or whoever. they just like, listen, I talked to you. You sent me this email that said that. I called someone on the phone. They said something different. The actual product is something entirely different. You know, it's like people hate that stuff. So I think trying to leverage these large platforms, uh, you know, just as, as a technical foundation for that is a good start. But you're absolutely right. There's, you know, I mean, that is a, just the technology infrastructure for it. You need that level of governance of people agreeing okay, like, who is going to set these rules on how we communicate to customers. Uh, if a customer is, you know, in the middle with the you know call of our you know customer service team because they're having a huge problem, how do we make sure like our you know influencer marketing program over here isn't like trying to get them to like post reviews of us, you know, <laughs> on popular sites <laughs> at that exact moment? Probably not a good idea. You know, and so even with the technology, you need need some sort of level of like, okay, how do these teams agree to collaborate? around those technology foundations.
0: Have you seen an organization that, in your opinion, and even if you left the brand name out of it, that does that really well, that has managed to get all of those pieces, you know, the technology infrastructure, the governance, the people process tools set up uh, in such a way that everything, maybe even in spite of being a large organization, worked really well?
2: Yes, I've seen examples on both sides, you know, uh, so actually, I'll say uh, the I, I don't mind naming the brands, uh, you know, I mean, the good side, like uh, I u- used to fly JetBlue a lot. And I thought they did a wonderful job of connecting the pieces of what would happen on the website, what I would get from my, you know, emails that were delivered to me. If I had to call someone on the phone, you know, their ability to immediately connect the dots. Uh, on, oh, here's what you were just doing on that website. And yeah, okay, we can fix that for you because I probably screwed it up. That's why I was calling. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, uh, not to say there aren't other things they could have done better, but I felt like these really radically different departments and teams had found a mechanism behind the scenes to coordinate their uh, efforts to make a very seamless experience. The other side, I won't specifically name the company, although you'll probably guess it, is I had a post on my blog a few years ago about this just disaster experience I had trying to take my daughter to a Taylor Swift concert, and oh my goodness, the I must have connected through eight different channels to this ticket company and every single one was yeah just on un, either unable to help me or completely disconnected from the other or throwing me off in some other direction and i was trying chatbots phone systems emails mobile it was just like okay clearly this company had spent a fortune on martech i mean they had all the technologies for this stuff but the way in which it was orchestrated well all right it was a cacophony it was not orchestrated and
1: uh yeah it's it's
2: you know when you're a customer in those situations boy is that frustrating
1: Hmm. tickets company in a concert i wonder who that could be (laughs) you know you, you think when you spend enough on service charges they'd be able to you know streamline that a lot better
2: You know, I'm just trying to avoid a lawsuit here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Could be any some
2: unnamed ticket company associated with the Taylor Swift concert. Yeah, but
1: (laughs) well, Scott, you've talked a lot about no code on the Chief Martech blog, as as well as in some of your speeches and keynotes. So, for someone that may not have heard of them, can you explain what no code means?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the simplest version of it is there were things that you wanted to build, you know, whether it's a little piece of software or even things like a little creative or a little web page or any of this sort of stuff that you used to have to go to an expert to like build it for you and to have a software developer or a designer or, you know, someone like that build it for you, you know. And the truth is, the number of things that people wanted for all these little cases you know it just the vast majority of them didn't make sense to like oh well I'm not going to hire a software developer for this or if I get a ticket to IT to do this you know it's going to take me a year by then it's I don't care I mean you know I'll move on. you know and so no code is this set of tools that just philosophically are about giving general business users the ability to create things that they would have before had to wait for some sort of specialist to do for them. And I'm, I'm actually right in the middle of writing a piece about this. And I, like one of the examples I have, this might be a terrible example. So I'm going to try this out <laughs> on you and you can throw fire at me. if You, you can bet know. it, we'll bet it for you. Um, but it was like, you know, in the 50 years ago, if you wanted to give a slide presentation to an audience, You needed a specialist who was going to like take big sheets of paper and they were going to use like typesetting tools and rubber cement and exacto knives. And they would assemble, you know, like these, you know, a specialist for this, you know, the slide had to make sure it's just right. You would then bring in a photographer, a professional photographer would take the photo. They get converted over to, you know, the slides. Eventually you'd take it to a projector. Not a lot of presentation, slide presentations in the seventies there. Fast forward to today and like, you know, PowerPoint and Google Slides and all this. I mean, I found a stat like they say there's 500 million users in PowerPoint. There's like 30 million presentations in PowerPoint that are given every day. And I know this lends itself to the obvious joke of like, oh, and for God's sake, why did we do this to ourselves? (laughs) But the joke aside, you have to admit, I mean, like, we're just able to communicate with these, like, you know, visual layouts of things, you know, effortlessly. It's just become like a part of the reasons we make so many jokes about is just because, yeah, it's become an integral part, you know, of communications, whether you're in a boardroom or a conference room or a classroom. And it's just huge orders of magnitude difference in who's able to leverage that uh, for much simpler, like, the sort of cases that well I would never hire a professional slide designer to like, you know, give this talk to my daughter's class. But yeah, you know, I mean, here, i put a few things together, show them, they'll see the photo, we'll you know, talk about it. I think that's what no code is all about, except it's happening now not just for things like you know, slides or desktop publishing or little websites. It's like, oh wow. So without really knowing how to create a software program, I can use this tool to kind of create a little app. Like one of my favorites is this thing called uh, glide.app that literally you fill out a spreadsheet and you know, with some data and some ways you want it to work click a button, and it will convert it into a native iOS and Android app for you. So, yeah, I mean, part of my (laughs) spiel when I talk to people about this is like, okay, well, you know, raise your hands if you can use Excel. Okay, congratulations, all of you who raised your hands. You're
1: now mobile app developers as well, too. When you say no code, is that also, would you, for the novice, would that be like a WordPress plugin?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, this is part of where, like, no code... Is a, is a really fuzzy term uh, because you could say things like, you know, Squarespace or Wix, you know, for building a little website. I mean, that's a no code app. Uh, if you consider HTML and CSS and stuff like that to be code, you don't need to know HTML now to create a really stunning website. I mean, you can freaking get the advertisement off of the Super Bowl and, you know, be up and running, you know, a couple hours later. So um, yeah, that's, that, that, that's no code.
0: The slides presentation is the image I get in my head is sort of something from Mad Men in the 60s, where, you know, to put one of those presentations together, it might take, you know, days, if not weeks. And you need expertise in it. Whereas today, you know, my my seven year old can put together a PowerPoint presentation for class. So I think it's fitting. Uh, I guess my question with the no code side of things, I think it's amazing that tools like this can empower individuals that have a little bit of knowledge but maybe not the technical background. But I guess I wonder as you know it grows or the need for it grows, is there a risk in placing a no-code bet on the wrong vendor? Like if you end up picking a piece of technology that you think is going to be the backbone for something that you're trying to accomplish, maybe it's your website. And You bet big on it and everybody in the organization starts to use it and the industry goes a different direction or the company goes out of business, which not as likely with some of the bigger vendors. But, uh, you know, what do you see as the challenges with sort of taking that gamble on a particular vendor?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I think a few different answers there. One is um, I think one of the places where no code is most valuable is not on big projects. Because for big projects, we always had budget and very often you still want the expertise, you know, for a big project of like professional, you know, like software architects. Where no code, I think, has its greatest value is there's all these just small little things that individuals want to do or teams want to do that before they just... You know, they weren't going to get a software developer to custom build that for them. But if, you know, one of them can sit down for a few hours and get a couple automations that then make their lives easier for the next six months of their project, hell yeah, that's awesome. You know, and I think one advantage of that is when you get down into all those little cases, there's so many different tools that are embracing this no-code mantra of like, hey, you don't have to be a specialist. We'll let you create some really cool stuff. You know, that, that also, both because these things are relatively small use cases that are being solved, and in aggregate, they're actually distributed across a number of different tools. I think that mitigates the risk somewhat. But then even on large projects, I guess... I don't know, I mean, you, you tell me if you agree or disagree, push back on this, but like, I'm not sure that in the days of code, people were free from that either. I mean, back when I put on my hat of once upon a time, you know, being at a web development agency, you know, if you hired one agency to build your website, and then at some point in time you fire that agency or you go away from it, and then you try and get another agency to come in and pick up the pieces of where that left off, that just generally never worked. Uh, I mean, it was almost always, I mean, people used to joke about like, oh, redesigning the website again. I don't think it was just a cosmetic thing. I think part of the reason that kept happening is because anytime a company is like, okay, well, we want a new set of functionality to our website. Our old agency kind of sucked for this. Let's get a new one. Basically the new one was like, it will be half the cost and a third of the time for us to just build this completely for scratch for you than to try and go in and untangle that spaghetti mess, you know, that the chowder heads before us had let, like, you know, left. <laughs> I just, I, I mean, I, I, I don't wanna sound like I'm unempathetic to the, the technology risk of people making bets and then at some point those bets failing. I just don't know if that risk is net new or if that's kind of been with us for this whole journey.
0: That's fair. I think that's fair. If you had made a bet on, say, Cold Fusion in the late
2: 90s. <laughs> that was just the one coming to
0: mind. <laughs> by early 2000. All right, we've been at this yeah. for a while. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan, we could geek out on it, but I'm sure you've got a few.
1: <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> So with, with we talked about this uh, a lot. And again, we talk about HubSpot, Chris and I, on this podcast because we don't get endorsed, no sponsorship, nothing. It just, it works. It's easy to use, which I think is another number one thing when you get into technology. Is it something easy to use? Can you comprehend it? How How does it work for your team? So that's one thing. And and it's been fun to kind of look at it over the last 10 years for Chris and I and just see sort of the evolution. When we kind of look at, especially now in 2020, where everything's sort of changed, but, but maybe it hasn't at the same time. We're talking about technology development. What's next for HubSpot?
2: Yeah, uh, I probably can't actually answer that. I mean, we figured necessarily that. Necessarily, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, yeah uh, uh, I, you know, the, the, the rules of public companies, apparently they get uh, concerned when you uh, <laughs> give those sorts of tips out. But I don't know. I mean, I think even just from, a, you know, what's sort of publicly out there, you know, HubSpot's a really big believer in trying to connect the different Facets of the front office organization around a common platform, uh, you know, and be one of the reasons we have all the open APIs and this app ecosystem is we don't want to force people into having to use all HubSpot. Like, hey, listen, if you want to use a different tool for your service desk, you know, and a different tool for your email marketing, listen, we're happy to have you pick whichever tools you want to work with this platform. That being said, the vision is we really do believe if you have one underlying platform crossing all of these different departments, you're really going to be in a much easier position to orchestrate, yeah, uh, customer journeys, you know, across the marketing, sales, and service funnel, or I guess we don't think of it as the funnel anymore. It's the flywheel. Flywheel. Uh, Because you get those happy customers, and then, you know, they come back with repeat business, and then they advocate and bring more customers, and...
1: The circle just continues.
0: (laughs) Your day job must be so much fun in talking to these companies and finding new ways to integrate. Can you pick a coolest part of it? Is there something that, you know, surprises you throughout, you know, your days and weeks and talking to new companies and finding ways to handle this integration or, you know, getting to see all the newest, coolest apps that would want to use something like HubSpot as that sort of monolith central hub that you were talking about?
2: Yeah, well, I I think you put your finger on it, uh, you know, I mean, both with what I do at HubSpot and then just uh, even with the work around that landscape, you know, I, I feel like, and again, I don't want to pick on the cynics, you know, I mean, we're, we're all cynics in our own ways, you know, but I, I, I sometimes feel like, you know, when that MarTech landscape comes out every year, there's always the cynics who are like, oh, yeah, this is all, I mean, they're all the same thing, you know, and there's no innovation and you know, it's just 100 copycats. You know, and there's some copycats in there. But the truth is, like, when you're in this stuff, you know, week by week, and you're seeing these, like, new startups that have thought about a problem that, you know, know, their audience has, and they've come up. With actually a really better and easier way to do it, and you get enough of these things, and you see the creative imagination that uh, you know entrepreneurs are still bringing this, you're like, I don't know, I I think there's actually a lot of innovation happening in MarTech. I think there's a lot of room for more. Uh, you know, and again, it kind of goes back to that thing that you know most websites suck today. So uh, what are we actually going to do to solve that? Uh, Right? I mean, like, will we start using more AI, more no code, more like, you know, how do we get to a place that, you know, half the websites in the world don't suck as badly as they do today? That would be like, if someone could figure that out, you know, that would be a huge, (laughs) like opening of the heavens. And I don't know, again, we get back into the mode of like, at some point, I always feel like the craft of marketing, you know, is an ingredient you can't, Tech away uh, But that being said, boy, if you could have the tech help people do a better job with that craft, I think there's a lot of room for innovation
1: there so Scott, if there was one takeaway that you could leave with our audience, what would that be?
2: Oh wow, uh, you are living in an amazing time to be an entrepreneur and to be a marketer. I mean the tools that you have at your disposal you know are just. It's, it's, it's incredible. And all those crazy vendors is, you know, the downside of, you know, having to like choose among, you know, so many options. The flip side of that coin is all those companies are competing for your business. They're trying to compete to, can they do it better? Can they do it cheaper? Can they, you know, be more helpful to you? Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful time to be working in marketing.
0: So Scott, we don't like to always talk shop. This is a happy hour. We have a segment that we call keeping it light. What is it that you are binge watching on, you know, Netflix or Amazon Prime? Or if you're, you know, not watching TV that you're reading or maybe, you know, listening to or anything like that, that you'd leave the audience with.
2: Oh wow yeah what have I uh, you know I just watched the first episode of uh the Ozarks um oh. so uh I oh, you're I've in been for a good one those. Um, You're in for a good one All right good 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 I I've always been late to these like it I I think we finally watched the Breaking Bad series about a year after it had ended, we finally like, all right, well, so everyone's talking about this watch. I'm like, oh, man, where have I been all my life? Stranger Things was another one of those that, you know, I had a friend of mine was telling me about it for years. Oh, you'd love this guy. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Finally, you know, get to catch, you
1: know, sit down and binge watch it
2: and love it. Well, I'm I, saw all- your,
1: I saw your picture. I guess it was a sunrise. And you said oh, the sky great. looks like yeah, something out of like Stranger Things. Whoa. <laughs> and it did. It looked exactly like it.
2: <laughs> and we were taking our uh, demo dog for a walk. So I was like, hmm, okay, what's going on here?
0: <laughs> so if if people want to learn more uh, or get a copy of your book, where can they find you?
2: Uh, all right. So uh, my website is chiefmartech.com. And that's uh, Chief Martech without an H at the end. Uh, story for another time. Uh, I'm also that same at Chief Martech without an H uh, on Twitter. So happy to chat with people there. Uh, and uh, yeah, the book is Hacking Marketing. Uh, hopefully uh, Amazon is still carrying it uh, somewhere. So uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> without a doubt. Scott, hey. this has been so awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time.
1: Oh, thank you guys so much for having me on. This was definitely we'd love to do this again. Thank you so much, Scott. So that was another fun interview, Ryan. What'd you think of that? You know, Scott is a brilliant man, and he just brought so much. And a couple of things I thought was pretty eye-opening was the fact, you know, about the smaller businesses and how they, you know, in a way kind of have an advantage that some of these enterprises don't about, you know, we talked about agility and, you know, budget shouldn't necessarily be the main obstacle with incorporating more uh, marketing technology. So those are some of the big things that kind of surprised me, but he has so much knowledge and you guys, at certain points, you know, I could tell you guys were total Martech geeking out and it was great to uh, to listen to, but he was, he was great and uh, totally full of knowledge.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to lie. This was definitely a more personal episode of the show for me, but a lot of fun and I hope our listeners got a lot of value. I feel like he dropped a lot of great knowledge when we were talking about the no-code marketing stuff and you know, the way different marketing stacks shape up and how the successful companies are the ones that are intentional and it doesn't require a big budget. A lot of great information and, uh, you know, be interesting to see how things continue to evolve throughout this global pandemic and if that'll change the way customers uh, or rather businesses have to engage with customers in the future. So I do find it interesting that as a very busy MarTech guy that he's watching a lot of shows that are... Uh, not as mainstream anymore, rather a little bit older. Uh, but what about you, Ryan? What are you binge-watching or reading these
1: days? You know, it's kind of funny. He mentioned uh, Stranger Things, which is which is a great uh, series, and it's one I was always looking forward to. On that kind of little out there, I've not always been a huge sci-fi or any fan like that, but slowly, I, I don't know, I've just kind of started watching a little bit more, and I'm late to the game also on this. HBO ran the series, I think it was about nine episodes, uh, Watchmen, about these sort of... I don't even know how you describe it. Superheroes, basically it takes place back in uh, Tulsa, you know, 34 years ago. And it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of things about it that rival sort of this social injustice. There are some, you know, white supremacy and racial injustice. So there are some parallels a little bit. Now, this is a little bit extreme of what happens uh, or is happening in this country. But at the same time, it's very entertaining. And if you kind of like that uh, sort of superhero sci-fi, definitely go check it out on HBO.
0: Yeah, I've heard some good things about Watchmen, but uh, I actually, I have to admit, I've been hearing about Cobra Kai for years, and I was not a YouTube premium subscriber, and everybody kept telling me that's where you had to go to get it, and, you know, there's so much content to consume these days that I just never got around to it. Well, fast forward to today, and Netflix has now purchased, I guess they're going to do a third season of it, and so now they own it, so they've released it on Netflix, and I'm only two episodes in, but I gotta say, so far it's living up to the hype, uh, You know, last time you were rooting for the Karate Kid, Daniel La Russa. Now you're getting a little bit of uh, Johnny's perspective. And so far, it's actually been been really good. So you heard everything
1: with Scott Brinker. I know you have some things that you want to let us know, some things you agree with. You want to add to the conversation. Please reach out to us. Send us an email podcast at araxum.com. That again is podcast at A-R-A-X-A-M dot com you're not big on email, you'd rather quickly hit us up on social media. Better yet, let us know what you think about this episode with Scott Brinker. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, same handle, RyanSmithFLA, or find me on LinkedIn, Ryan Smith Marketing. or you can even find Araxum on LinkedIn as well.
0: Yeah, Ryan and I really do love to hear from you. And we, believe it or not, actually answer every email and every message we get on social media. So please do reach out. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Uh, It's real Chris Casale on Twitter, R-E-A-L-C-H-R-I-S-C-A-S-A-L-E. And then, of course, Chris Casale on LinkedIn. But you can also find me under Araxum or under Digital Marketing Happy Hour. And of course, if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. We hope it will enlighten your day after all it is our mom's favorite podcast and in keeping with the theme we hope it's scott's mom's favorite podcast too and on that note thanks everybody
1: for listening and we will talk to you next week where we have another special guest
0: stay tuned thanks everyone
1: thank you for listening to the digital marketing happy hour this week's episode is brought to you by araxum.com your digital resource for marketing and technology visit araxum at a-r-a-x-a-m.com the music intro you heard is called pure adrenaline by eddie off the album too damn loud you can learn more at cactus the music used for closing credits in my pocket by jazzer You can find it on their album, Message. Learn more at betterwithmusic.com. Thank you for listening.